Okay, looks like I'm live, so, um, alright, welcome back to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics, everybody. My name is Josh Gibbs, and today we are going to take a deeper look into the Trinitarian doctrine, um, particularly within the study of God, and we're going to compare um, the Unitarian doctrine of God, as well as uh, some different aspects of oneness doctrine of God. And uh, we're going to get Dr. Edward Dalcor's take on that, so stay with us, and uh, I'll be right back after this opening video. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who is under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Awesome. Okay, welcome back. And I uh, want to kind of give you guys an update, a little bit more specific um, explanation for what it is that we're talking about. A couple of the questions that we're going to be answering today, um, and we're going to get into a little bit more of the deeper side of this conversation, is specifically de dealing with three different categories of uh, groups that would claim to be Christian and uh, and have different perspectives on uh, God, who God is, the doctrine of God specifically relating to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So um, the first question is going to be, do, do Unitarians and Oneness folks have a different Jesus than the Jesus Trinitarians worship? And the second question is going to be, do these differences impact the gospel message? So I want to let you guys know um, those are those are kind of the overarching questions that we're going to be looking at, uh, but we're going to get a little bit more specific and, and deeper within the Trinitarian view of God as it's related to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father as well. Uh, but you'll have a chance to, at the end, call in with your questions if you would like to. That number is, uh, let me get it up on the screen, it's 816-866-0025, and... You'll have a chance at the end to call in if you want to. As always, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to this. You can find us on YouTube, Twitter, Periscope, Facebook, and uh, five other video platforms um, that you should be able to stream this live on just about any video platform that you would like to. Um, it will be on audio podcasts as well. So uh, if you would, go ahead and, and you can even do um, watch parties as well if you want to do that and I know that we're going to have some oneness and Unitarian folks watching this today so uh, I would encourage you guys if you have any questions or comments for uh, Dr. Dalcor to call in and you'll have a chance to speak with him directly so um, let's go ahead and get Dr. Dalcor on the screen with us 
and uh, we will go ahead and get started, kind of an introduction for who he is, and uh, go from there. But anyways, Dr. Edward Dalcourt, it's really good to have you on. I'm really excited uh, that you're here today, and we get to have this conversation. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here, particularly talking about this particular um, topic that's not only so, I think, mismanaged and confused by Christians, but um, even non-Christian oneness Unitarians, which will discuss why I use that term non-Christian, um, as to defining um, their spiritual state. Yeah. And I think it's important for Christians, all Christians, to not only apprehend the simple simple doctrine of the Trinity, but also apprehend what is and what is not the Trinity. Okay. Perfect. So let's, uh, let's give a little bit of a background for who you are. You are... Um, based off of your web website, it's, it, this is uh, the information that we've got, and anybody can access this at ChristianDefense.org. I want to show you guys. I'll, I'll go to the, I'll go to the website and show you so that you can see it as well. But um, Dr. Dalcourt is, is the president and director of the Department of Christian Defense, and is the administrator and theological co contributor in literature curriculum at the Grace Bible University. He teaches apologetics and general theology at Harvest Bible University, and he also serves as mentor of theology at Greenwich School of Theology in London, England. He also holds the appointment of senior lecturer of the Northwest University Faculty of Theology um, at the, I'm probably going to say this wrong, Potchefstroom campus, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Um, so, you hold a Master in Apologetics from Columbia Evangelical Seminary and a Doctorate in Philosophy and Dogmatic Theology from Northwest University. Uh, Dr. Dalcourt is an international speaker and has been featured on many Christian and secular radio and TV networks and is a theological contributor to various theological journals and publications and has written numerous countercult apologetical and evangelical tracts and pamphlets as well as authored, authored several books on the topic of apologetics and theology, uh, which one of the books uh, that he wrote um, was useful to me in particular, which was the definitive look at oneness theology. Um, so that's going to be helpful in our conversation today. Um, but I do want to go to uh, the website and show you guys who are watching um, what that looks like. So it's christiandefense.org. And here's kind of the, the home page. You've got a bunch of different articles that you can choose from. Uh, in the article sure. section, uh, you, there's a search tool up here. You can literally type in anything uh, that you have got on your mind as far as like, say, Trinity or Oneness or Unitarian. And it'll bring up all the articles um, that have those keywords in there. This is something that was useful for me when I was uh, doing a search for a debate that I did recently on with a Biblical Unitarian. And this is an article on oneness uh, uh, theology along with, uh, there's a bunch of other stuff in this particular article as well, including baptismal regeneration, the filling of, uh, of the filling and baptism of the Spirit, Spirit baptism, uh, was the Trinity conceived in the 4th century, the concept of the Trinity, debunking Unitarian belief, there's just so much in here. Uh, but then you've got other a, a bunch of other material written for and again, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, Romanism, and just so much information on here, guys. I would encourage you to go look if you have not seen it already. Go check it out. It's ChristianDefense.org. Um, but should I call you Edward, Ed, or Doctor Dalcor? What do you What do you prefer? 
Um, anything but Ed. Oh, Ed. Ed in Hebrew means filthy. <laughs> filthy rat. Ed. Okay. Uh, you can, you can Eddie, Edward, Dr. Dalcor. Whatever you choose. That'll work. I'll call you Dr. Dalcor. So, um, would you would you be all right to take a few minutes and talk about how you kind of got involved in apologetics, how you got involved in ministry with Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Oneness Theology, Unitarians, that kind of thing? And I know that you've been involved in debates in the past. I know you've written books on the subject. Um, can you give us a little bit more information on that? And while you're doing that, uh, that'll give me a chance to post this video in, in a few different uh, Facebook groups. Yeah. Um, in the uh, oh, maybe late 80s, um, I, was, uh, I was professing Christian. I was brought up in a Baptist church. And if you're brought up in a Baptist church, you learn at least essentials on what the Trinity is and the deity of Christ and so on and so forth. I didn't know much, but I knew that. And to make this brief, Joel Witnesses came to my, my door at the time, and they were talking about firstborn, and I was, I was a little cocky because I thought, yeah, I can defend the deity of Christ and all these things. But they pr presented arguments that I've never heard of, and I didn't know how to respond to. I felt so inadequate. So I wanted to learn as much as possible about the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I was on a quest just to learn about them. As I'm studying the Watchtower, I'm studying how they um, manipulate and also distort Greek terms in passages. Now, most of them don't know Greek, but they like to distort and postulate Greek. I don't know why, but that's what they do because like, it gives them the advantage because they know most people don't know Greek. And, of course, I learned later, it's not so much the grammar or the Greek words, it's context that dictates Greek words and grammar and so on and so forth. But they don't like context. And I'm dialoguing with them, and I felt very inadequate, so I, as mentioned, started this quest to study them. And as I'm studying them, I'm looking at languages, which caused me to study languages in terms of their assertions, which caused me to study other areas and caused me to study um, different groups, different um, non-Christian groups and world religions. And so from there, it just um, escalated in terms of academic study and increasing in knowledge. And my desire just to reach out to these people really was the, the thing that prompted me to uh, go further and eventually full-time in this ministry. And then in the 90s, I was in an athletic ministry where we travel all around the world and do feats of strength and all these things. And um, I met so many people on the road, non-Christian cults, and I had a lot of interaction. And then I started in the area of apologetics more and more. And eventually, I uh, started doing it full-time, and that's what I do now. We have Department of Christian Defense Educational Apologetic Ministry. Awesome. And we... Lots of material, lots of literature, just to educate general theology and um, non-Christian religions and uh, Advent theologies. And you do a podcast as well, don't you? Yes. And uh, let me think that, okay, so we've got the podcast is, uh, that's on the homepage. I'm not on the homepage. What's your podcast called again? I think it's called uh, Truth, uh, Grace Truth. Or, or or theological answers. Um, I yeah. forgot the name. Is it theological answers? Uh, theology answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or theology. Yeah. Pastor James Tippins in Claxton, Georgia, which is a 
tiny, tiny town outside of Savannah. But yeah, we do a podcast once a week and deal with various topics. Okay, um, so let's uh, let's go ahead and see if we can find. A, uh, we'll transition into what we're going to talk about today, and obviously, it's going to be dealing with the Trinity. We're going to be dealing with uh, Unitarianism and uh, oneness theology as it's related to the doctrine of God. So I think that uh, probably the best place to start is obviously giving a clear position on what the Trinitarian would believe is uh, kind of the the description of God, because you and I both know um, that we get accused so often of uh, worshiping three gods or worshiping uh, three different persons who would make up three different gods. And, and I think that getting those the terminology down from the beginning would kind of clear up all, a lot of the conversation um, that is kind of unnecessary that, that it leads to if we don't get that from the beginning. So if you could, uh, yeah, give us a, a kind of a clear definition on the Trinity, and we're, then we'll go from there. Um, and I, I always admonish Christians, don't use analogies. They're the worst, because they either present a, a oneness position like the ice analogy and the water and so on and so forth. I think that's what T.D. Jakes, who's one of the most popular oneness persons and the secretive oneness person that, that's out there right now. But analogies don't do justice to the biblical doctrine. Analogies confuse the biblical doctrine by teaching either tritheism or oneness doctrine. None of them represent accurately the doctrine of the Trinity. So here's my advice to all Christians. Stay biblical. Whether it's your, in your evangelism or your presentation of who God is, stay Biblical. Stay biblical. And to define the Trinity in a very simple way, and of course, you know, there's several ways we can do it, but stay stay simple. Try not to use philosophy. Stay biblical. One God revealed in three persons. I normally define it as there's in Scripture we find three distinct persons. Now, why do we say person? Well, there's no other ontological category because they possess personal attributes. We do not mean humans, aside from the nature of Christ. We don't mean humans when we call the Father a person. We don't mean humans when we call Satan or demons a person. We use the term person to define something, an object that has personal characteristics and personal attributes. Clearly with the Holy Spirit, the Father, and of course with Jesus both in his divine nature and human nature. Um, Three distinct persons we find in Scripture who share, who share the nature of the one, of the one being, one being, not one person, one being. Contra to a Trinitarian description of one God, of course, are Unitarians, who define one God in all these passages in the Old Testament, there's one God here, there's one God there, not over 9,000 times it's been said there's one God, the problem there is they're reading into one God a one-person or unipersonal definition with absolutely no justification except a pre-committed theology. Three persons share the nature of the one being. There's one being. There's one what? Ontologically, he's one being revealed in three, as it said, three who's or three persons. We cannot confuse person and being. One God revealed in three persons. And the, the, the true God of biblical revelation, you know, that, that's the only true God that can remove a stone from a sinner's heart. That's the only true God that's affirmed in John 17, 3, when he says, this is eternal life, that they shall have knowledge of the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. And in scripture, we find that the true God 
of biblical revelation is triune, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the historic Christian faith. Okay, that's good. I think that is uh, really important to lay down the groundwork, kind of the foundation for the terminology of what we're talking about when we talk about the triune God. And I think that um, obviously what we're, what we're hearing at the beginning is it, when we talk about God being one God, uh, just like um, the Bible describes God being one God, we're talking about God being one being in three persons as opposed to a unipersonal God. So we believe in a tripersonal God who makes up the one being as opposed to a unipersonal God who is one being. Um, so let's look at some of the general concepts and dive a little bit more um, into some of the specifics um, that others have on the Trinity. And, and we can wrap the podcast up, I think, ultimately with how one's view of Jesus has a direct impact on the gospel, because I think that both you and I would would say how you view Jesus is going to impact the gospel, and uh, I think that'd be a, a way to wrap it up. But here, so we've got two major points that I think we can start with here, and you and I had, had kind of gone back and forth in emails on this particular uh, point, and and not spending a whole lot of time on it, but I do think it's something that's that's worth mentioning because one thing. One thing that uh, Unitarians, some of the deeper thinking Unitarians or the deeper thinking oneness folks would, would bring up is the idea of eternal generation or eternal sonship. And um, you, you seem to kind of have a, a, a little bit of a problem with this and I, this terminology. And I think uh, um, even Walter Martin had some issues with using this terminology as it's related to um, describing the, the second person in the Godhead, Jesus Christ, prior to the incarnation. So if we could, let's take a look there in, um, in the person of the Son pre-incarnation and how, how you would kind of go about tackling the idea of uh, eternal generation or eternal sonship as it's related to Jesus. Right. Um, yeah, it, the, the problem with eternal generation is it tends to, folks tend to focus on the generation part of the term, the phrase, and not the eternal part. Without generation, we have eternal, and this is a doctrine held by um, Christians for a lo whole long time. In fact, most of the Greek church, the Eastern church was uh, Athanasius included, held to this idea of eternal uh, generation and eternal sonship. But we have to explain it because, interestingly, I think we talked about this. It, it was, um, yes, Walter Martin denied the concept of eternal generation. Um, many would. You got good guys on both sides. It was John MacArthur who also denied eternal generation until he had a change of mind. And unlike a whole lot of pastors, he actually admitted that he changed his mind and he wrote an article. He wrote an article why he holds now to eternal generation. But when we're talking about eternal generation or eternal sonship, first, the origins don't go back before origin. Uh, in, in fact, Origen was somewhat of a, the developer of this doctrine, of course, in its infancy, and thereafter we have this eternal generation that's been defined in different ways in different times as well. We have to understand that too. Patristics is an area, Church Fathers, patristics is, is an area that I think so many Christians just don't know how to read because they don't know how to interpret in light of a the particular time 
that it's um, indicative to in the particular time of the church father, not understanding that words meant something different to them than it means to us. Same with any archaic language. They wrote in different languages than English, so we can't interpret the church fathers in the context of 21st century English. And we have to understand what they said. So when Irenaeus talks about um, God became man so we can become gods, a similar statement as others did, he's not talking about, it's not that he didn't say that, those words, yeah. but the question is, what did he mean by those words? And of course, he didn't mean we become God ontologically, or we become God like some word of faith Kenneth Copeland would teach. That's not what he meant. Um, so we have to understand and be cognizant of how they wrote and the time when they wrote and the language in which they wrote. Um, so dealing with the eternal generation, like any other words, we have to be cognizant also of the term eternal sonship. When MacArthur, before he changed his view, of course he's being accused of denying the son, because he says, I don't believe in eternal sonship. I don't believe in the eternal generation. And keep in mind, there's various views with eternal generation. Some would hold to eternal sonship without holding to eternal generation. And of course, if we have more time, Josh, we can go into all the nuts and bolts of eternal generation. Um, we have to keep in mind one thing, one very important thing, that oneness and Unitarians more often are not considering. Number one, Christians on, on both sides of that doctrine um, hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. Of course, it would not be Christian. So it's not. it has nothing to do with the Trinity. It has nothing to do with the deity of Christ. It has nothing to do with the unipersonality, pre-existence of Christ. It has to do with title. It has to do with position. Um, it has to do with function. Not his ontological status as God the Son. God the Son. I'll use that term Son because the authors use that term. Whether the author, biblical authors are referring to the person of the Son or the actual Jesus or the pre-incarnate word as the Son. It's irrelevant because they both are affirming um, the eternality of Jesus Christ, the eternal word or the eternal Son or God the Son. We use those terms all the time. So we have to understand eternal generation or a non-eternal generation is held by Christians that hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. One is Pentecostals and Unitarians assume that all Christians hold to eternal generation. So they'll stack up a bunch of verses, normally out of context, to try to refute that point. Well, the problem is if they ever encounter someone who doesn't hold to eternal generation, their argument collapses because not all Christians hold to it. I will say one more thing. As J.D. Kelly points out, a patristic authority, he says not some, but all. The apostolic fathers, when they spoke in this, they all dated the sonship. And that's how it dated the son. When did he become son? Not did he emerge as a person. We believe right. he was eternal son. But was he always positioned, named the son? And J.D. Kelly says nobody did until, um, I believe it was until origin onwards. But none of the apostolic fathers None of the apostolic fathers held to that position. Yeah, but it's a very interesting discussion. It is. I I think that that um that's where you can kind of get off into the weeds a little bit in understanding the person of Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, and I think that is the difficulty is understanding, um, just exactly what form 
Christ was in prior to the incarnation? Because obviously we're, when we talk about Christ being pre-existent to the incarnation, we're describing the eternality of Christ as God uh, being the image of God who shows up in the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. And uh, those are those are some of the points that, that we'll dive into as we go a little bit deeper. But I think uh, just to kind of sum up what you're saying um, uh, the best way I can, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and then we'll move on to the next point, is, um, is, is describing the eternal generation um, or e- eternal generation or eternal sonship of Christ is differentiated from the generation or the sonship of Christ because essentially what I'm hearing you say is, and, and I know you don't like using illustrations, um, but so common with this particular um, description of generation and sonship is is uh, kind of um, the light rays coming off from the sun, and this is something that generates from the power of the sun as a description for what um, would be the eternal sonship or the sonship of Christ or the generation or eternal generation of Christ generating from that power source. So obviously anybody who's keen to that would be able to identify there is a beginning to this thing coming off of this power source and it's going to end at some point. So that's obviously where part of the analogies would break down. Um, but and I, and I think there's there's more to be said obviously about each one of those topics, but um, would you say that that's kind of an accurate way to sum up the description that, that you've given for eternal generation and eternal sonship? Yeah, some, uh, yeah, somewhat. It, it, eternally generating, or as, as um, I think it was Jonathan Edwards that talks about, um, the son is the deity eternally generated, eternally generated by God's understanding uh, or having an idea of himself, subsisting in that idea, you yeah. know, and it can get more com. Yeah. Some people present more complexities. Of course, Edwards was very complex in some of his descriptions, but he was very um, crystal clear as well, particularly on the uh, these essential topics on the deity of Christ and so on and so forth. Um, okay, so one thing that I had brought up in the debate that I had with uh, Kenneth Jewell, um, who is a biblical Unitarian, as it's related to. Uh, Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Uh, there's a couple of points that I want to bring up. One is uh, something that I had got from Keith Piper. He and I were talking. He's he's in Australia. He's done a lot of work um, in ministering to Unitarians and oneness oneness folks um, in Australia, but also a- around the world. And he's written a, a just a, a ton on the subject. But but he draws a distinction between the two Greek words huios and technon. And says that technon is never once used to describe Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It's always huios, and he and he uses. I want to put this up on the screen for for those of you who are watching to be able to see what his issue is. Um, he uses huios to say um, that it is that it means the same nature as that Jesus that Jesus has the same nature as God, and then he gives nine examples of that, but he uses the word, the Greek word technon uh, to describe the actual offspring as a production from um, sexual reproduction, as a description of a child being an offspring of the father or uh, and, and a mother. In comparison to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, he's saying that this is this is a distinction that needs to be made in saying that he's the same nature as, but he's not, he's not literally the, the father is not literally the paternal father who created the huios, the son, but
but it's it's a description more of um, bringing into or bringing from one place to another into um, bringing God into the form of a man. So I think that's kind of a, a good place to start for this side of the conversation. But um, where would you go in describing the difference between those two words as it relates to the Son of God? You know, it, it's it's hard. It, just with the words for difference, um, differences, whether it's hetron or alas, just like the words for um, agape and philos, it's difficult to make a doctrine um, out of distinctions. Yeah. These kind of distinctions of a whole lot of words. In fact, in John, you know, he uses, like in First John, he uses the plural, uh, technion. Yeah. Uh, I know in First John two one and several other passages, and sometimes he uses uh, pation when it, when he's addressing his his um, his readers or his members of his own church, and sometimes he uses a completely different term, technon. In three one, when he's speaking about the children of God, um, you know, so this may be a stylistic, you know, thing that John did because if you look at John's literature, that's what he does. He's not consistent in a lot of places, and that's just John's style. It wasn't the best Greek, but um, it's just it is interesting that the two Greek words uh, for children, one is always used of Jesus, huios, why the other. Um, either technon or techna is used for believers and believers are children of God but they're not in the same category as the son of God because when Jesus claimed to be the son of God every single time when he was addressed as the son of God even by the evil spirits and the and the um, the disciples and I will mention the disciples in places like 1433 of Matthew in the same breath when they affirmed he was the son of God, they worshipped him. Yeah. The men yeah. in the boat, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. And showing that this phrase, son of God, was a, a religious in nature phrase that, of course, you know, I, I don't know, a lot of Unitarians don't like to interact much with different texts. They like to go on one and then argue from there. But when we look at places like in Matthew or Mark 14, 61 and 62, and um, 19.7, John, John 5, clearly the Jews understood the phrase Son of God as Jesus meant it. But in terms of making a, a difference, um, also Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Nobody else dared to in the narratives. No one in the narratives called him the Son, son of the Man, actually. Only Jesus. That was his favorite term. No one directly addressed him as that. So we see these phrases, and really phrases like particularly Son of God, and whatever, um, like in John one twelve, who asks is not used. Um, it's it's techna, but when we look at these these phrases, it's always defined in a context. It's never defined outside of the context. So what the Unitarians do, they get a word, and then they define it outside of the context in which the word actually appears. Or they'll give a stat, and that that doesn't help a context. That's like getting deriving your theology from a concordance. Yeah, you really. You're going to always end up in some kind of air. So whatever they're doing there, of course, it it's meaningless to their main thrust, the main thrust of their argument, because they're not proving anything by saying, well, Jesus was the Son of God and others weren't. Well, we also are called the Son of God, of course, in a different context. We're sons by adoption. Jesus was ontologically, and it's a relational term, Son of God. Um, he was the Son of God in that he possessed the very nature of God the father which the jews understood 
as I think you mentioned Walter Martin, one of the best, one of my favorite things he said is that the Jews were much smarter than the cults. They right. understood what Jesus was saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that I he that was when they were doing a round table uh, discussion or or debate. Yeah. yeah, that that was a good debate. Go check that out if you guys haven't seen that. Um, Walter Martin is yeah yeah he describes um, the cults and describes why why he puts them in a category of cult, and a lot of it has to do with uh, the isolation from anyone who's not a part of that particular denomination that they cannot be. Uh, saved, they cannot be Christian, um, and and obviously he's he's dealing with the oneness folks who who give a description that if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't um, if you're if, if you don't have the baptism of the Spirit, um, and if you um, if you don't have the right doctrine on Jesus, that that that's obviously taken out of the kingdom. So um, let's look at let's look at um, kind of okay. So there's a couple of things there. One I wanted to look at, so you've got the, the two most common terms that are used in describing Jesus, the Son of God, and then the Son of Man. And some people like to say that uh, the description of Jesus being called the Son of Man is, is, is always a description of his, his humanity. And then some people say, well, the description of Jesus as the Son of God is always a description of his divinity. And obviously you would, you would have some issues with that, I would have some issues with that, but could you take a second to kind of draw that out a little bit and, and uh, explain where the error is and that oversimplification there? Yeah, um, again, it would be really related to context. Sometimes, for instance, um, the, t the phrase Son of God, as the Jews understood it, relating it back to Daniel, the way Jesus claimed he was a son, I mean, I'm sorry, he's a son of man, the way Jesus claimed he was a son of man, his favorite term, the phrase of himself, they understood exactly uh, what that meant. Jesus himself says in um, uh, John uh, 3.13, he says, No one has gone up into heaven except the one, uh, Ectu Urano, that came out down from heaven, right? The Son of Man. Now, if you're going to relate Son of Man as just human, well, how is the Son of Man pre-existing in John 3.13? How does the Son of Man pre-exist? Jesus says the Son of Man, Ectu Urano, came from heaven. Well, of course, Jesus is speaking about his person. He's the Son of Man. That was one of his uh, his his epithets, his title that he used of himself. And again, this de demonstrated not only his, in many other contexts, his humanity and deity, but sometimes it referred to um, to his deity, like in this passage in John three thirteen, where it says, "Son of Man came from heaven." Now, of course, Jesus is speaking about the person of the Son of Man. So when you have a phrase about the Son um, or Jesus being eternal, we're not saying that there was a man named Jesus who was eternal, but rather the person of Christ who was eternal. But interestingly, though, when you look at authors, they normally connect the Son with verses that have his creatorship or eternality and not Jesus normally. But you do have something, some, interestingly, in, John, in, a, in Jude 1.5. Very interesting variant June what one five, and there's a list of various variants one five right. There's God delivered the people out of Egypt. Uh, the predominant reading is the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt, right? But now the according to the critical text, because of um, their textual wit not only witnesses but the the manuscript support as well, they have now a reading Jesus Jesus delivered His people out of Egypt. 
Which is interesting, because it rhymes with, contextually, with 1 Corinthians 10, when that rock was Jesus that led the people of Israel um, out of Egypt, right? But let me tell you something very interesting. This is, not that this is authentic of Jude, but it's just an interesting variant. It's one of my favorite ones in Jude 1.5. The earliest manuscript of Jude was P72. The earliest one of Jude, 1st, 2nd Peter and Jude, P72. In that earliest manuscript of Jude in 1.5, the variant, now I believe it's only in there, so we know it's not authentic, but the variant reads like this. Theos Christos delivered the people out of Egypt. The scribe calls him, terms him, the God Christ delivered the people out of Egypt. And it even has the, uh, it's written in the Nomina Sacra. So it's a very interesting variant, the God Christ. I love the, uh, I love the phrase. But in point of fact, most of the phrases or teachings of Jesus' eternality are, um, have this, it's connected with the Son and not Jesus or Christ, rather with the Son, which is, I think it's yeah. a very interesting point. Um, okay, so I, I think that's a good explanation on those those two things and, and something to really consider when you're looking at Jude 5. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, when we're talking about the Lord who led the Israelites out of Egypt, um, and, and specifically you've got some translations who are actually translating um, that variant into Jesus, we would obviously understand whether it's, it's the Kurios as the Lord or it's Jesus as Jesus. That it's it's still it's still a reference to the Lord Jesus as as being the one who led them out in the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. Um, beautiful. It is. It, it it's beautiful. Um, and I I do want to touch on that a little bit as it's related to um, Christ, kind of moving into our next topic in Philippians two six. We've got something that is is massively important as it's related to God becoming a man because that's. That's really what we believe as Trinitarians. We, be, we believe that God became a man, that uh, Jesus is more than just a man, that he's not just a man who is anointed with special power um, from the Holy Spirit with a special mission, but that he is 100% man who, is, who was uh, God manifest in the flesh and as, as a man. So I think that when we're talking about the emptying of Christ in Philippians uh, 2, 6, and 7, I'm going to put this on the three guys to see this who are watching it says who being in the form of god thought it not robbery to be equal with god but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of of a, of a servant and was made in the likeness of men um if you could take a second and kind of describe for us what exactly it is that we're talking about when we're talking about the emptying of christ okay um, first, related to the uh, excellent question because it's such a um, such a powerful passage in him in affirming the deity affirms the whole gospel, affirms his atonement, affirms his person. It affirms his distinction from the Father. Very important. It's radically anti oneness, no matter how you look at it. And of course, oneness struggle with this. Of course, they would not admit they struggle because you have different views of oneness Pentecostals. Is the question is when did Jesus say these things? When did he do the actions of the verbs? Did he do this in his? Does Philippians two six through eleven define his earthly life? This is how most most oneness would define it. Because if you say it's before his earthly life, well, that now you have some some theological problems that you have to explain away. But looking at the text, 
Um, first, context, as you know, for Christians, context is key for Christians. Non-Christians, what I've experienced, particularly with Jehovah's Witnesses and many Oneness Pentecostals, they don't like context. They're, n they're not a fan of the context, so they'll take a verb out, take a, take a verb out or take a noun out or take a word like the word for one out of its context. In context, the letter to the Philippian church was written, very interesting, um, as opposed from Paul's other letters, which most of them virtually were refuting or presenting some kind of rejoinder to a heresy, right? Yeah. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, most likely Judaism, or Judaizers, um, Colossians, and Second Thessalonians. We have the element of Gnosticism, that ideology. Whereas in Philippians, though, we don't find any inherent heresy. Now, yes, it talks about the dogs from without, and evil people, and these two women who are arguing. But we don't find any inherent heresy, which tells us that the Philippian church may have been a sound theologically church, uh, theological church, a sound theological church. Um, but one of the problems we find in the internal context is pride, right? This is dem especially demonstrated in verse, or in chapter 2, when Paul stresses to them to, to put others first, make yourself lowly before them, you know, have some humility here. And in verse 5, he switches to the ultimate, or he presents the ultimate act of humility. He says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 6 is the key here, because whatever the end of verse 6 or 7 and 8, whatever it means, it's governed by verse 6. Paul safeguards against any theology or any interpretation that would deny the eternal um, existing of the Son. Now, the Son is the referential identity, Christ Jesus, who, in verse 6, who, in morphe, in very form or nature, that what makes God God, the substance of God existing, right? Who, in very nature of God existing, the word existing, um, and I, I think I mentioned to you um, my last debate with Stephen, the late Stephen Ritchie, because he, he passed away, by the way. Um, Stephen Ritchie, he tried to use this word here, um, translated uh, existing or being, to show that in a lexicon it means came to be. In other words, Jesus Christ, there was a time when the Son, Jesus as the Son, emerged because of this word. Well, the problem is it, it's not in a lexical form. Um, huparko, just the verb in and of itself, the naked, uninflected verb, does mean came to be, beginning, so on and so forth, but that's not what Paul wrote. He wrote it in a present tense participle. He did not write just in the lexical form of the verb. This is a present active participle, translated ongoingness, the nature of God subsisting. He was always in the nature of God, did not consider um, hegesita. Now, here's a, I'm going to pause there, because this is a very interesting, um, very important point, as related to one of Pentecostals and Unitarians. It says, now this is before verse 7, before the emptying, before the incarnation. It says, equality with God, he did not consider a thing to be grasped. 
Now the word consider, hegesata, um, is only, the only ones who do the action of the verb are persons. Look it up. The only ones who do the action of the verb consider or reckon are persons. A, a thought in the Father's mind cannot in and of itself consider something, right? Yeah. A mode does not consider. A, a plan, you know, an abstract doesn't, only persons consider and he performed the action of this verb before he emptied himself. So he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or taken advantage of or used to his advantage. Now, here's the question I think you that we should address in verse 7. But, um, emptied himself. He emptied himself. And this is where the disputations start, even among Christians. What in the world did he empty himself of? Right. Well, we, number one, well, first, the reflexive pronouns used, he outon, um, himself. He himself emptied. In other words, the reflexive shows that the subject does something to himself. The Father did not empty him. The Holy Spirit did not empty him. But Ialton himself, Echinosin, Arius Tensor, uh, emptied. So he himself emptied himself. But what did he empty himself of? Well, it says he emptied himself, taking the very nature or form of a servant. Um, the, the, what's key here is the, the participle taking, or having taken, literally. Or he, I think in your translation, he took. Yeah. This is a participle. Normally, a this is an Arius participle. That's why it's translated uh, "having taken," literally. But semantically, according to grammarians like Dan Wallace and others, this would be semantically categorized, and we're, we're defining the empty, uh, semantically categorized as a participle of means. The very means of the empty of the self-emptying was what having taken the very means of the emptying, having taken the likeness of men being found, having been made in the appearance of a man. So, syntactically, what we have is a definition of how he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the very means or very nature of a servant. That's how he emptied himself. So, and when we talk about what he emptied himself of, we know how he did it. The very means of his emptying was in incarnation, right? Taking the very nature of a servant. Most folks, uh, in, in academically, would see this emptying as a a veil because it's never used. Paul never uses this term no in a in a literal way, like you get a glass of water, you empty it. But rather, it's used metaphorically. Like it has made void, and so on and so forth. Or your faith, lest the cross be empty, <coughs> so on and so forth. So it's always used in a metaphorical way. Most would see this, in scholarship, they would see this emptying as a, as veiling, not choosing to use divine prerogatives, or many of his divine prerogatives, because sometimes he does. We see demonstrations of his, his omniscience or demonstrations of he's omnipresent, like in John 14, 23, when he says, whoever loves me is going to obey my word, and he says, the Father will love them, and we will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. Yeah. 
That's demonstrating something that only God can do, omnipresence. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you're going to, both my Father and I will make our dwelling, right, with you, if you believe in me. So the dwelling with millions of people at the same time is uh, an attribute of om being omnipresent. But here, the emptying, no doubt, I think, um, demonstrates a to some of his or many of his divine prerogatives for a time. That's how I would see the, the emptying. Man, that's a really good explanation. I was uh, looking that up in the vocabulary of the Greek Testament um, as it's related to that word. And even in the, the definition that they give right at the, the very beginning, it says the idea of falling back upon a basis and hence of continuity with a previous state, which ori originally belonged to this verb. And they say it gradually, uh, it seems to have gradually faded into later Greek. And they give some examples of that. But it seems like, um, it seems like this, there's no doubt that the use of this Greek term is obviously going to represent something that's brought from one state to another. And that's one thing that I had brought up as, as it's related to Morphe, that, that Morphe would, in, in the case of Jesus in Philippians 2, 6, and 7, would be related to him being brought from one state to another. But um, we had a question that came in, and I want to get you on this. Do you think that it's necessary uh, to be able to witness to Unitarians and Oneness um, folks um, without knowing Greek and Hebrew? Like, do you think that... Cause, and I know that you talk about this in your podcast that it's not necessary to learn Greek and Hebrew, but you do find it a little bit more advantageous to be able to go to that level of a conversation, to be able to show them that. But what would your take be on that? Because obviously there's, it, it's, it's, it makes it a very clear argument that when we're, we're talking about Christ um, taking on the form of a man and, and humbling himself to be a servant in the fashion of a man, that, that we're describing him coming from a preexistent state to the state that he's in in the incarnation, but where would you go with that side of the conversation? I'm going to start with two things. Number one, we have to understand, according to places like Romans 1.16, it's the gospel that has the power of God for salvation. It's not external things. It's not uh, theology. It's not evidence. It's not anything else. But Paul says the gospel, the plain presentation of the work of the Son. Okay. Which doesn't require Greek, of course. Um, if you or myself, your translation or another translation, any recognized translation, I should say, presenting Philippians 2, 6 or 11 to a Unitarian, in, it, in and of itself, in just the plain reading of the text, is sufficient for the presentation of Christ as God in the gospel. Now, what they do, they present Greek words, right? Yeah. They present Greek. So sometimes um, it's good to know how to uh, refute um, what they're saying, or sometimes, and there are some oneness debaters that will do this. I think Roger Perkins did this in the James White debate. They abuse lexicons. They talk very fast, and they'll quote a lexicon, because they know most most Christians don't know what a lexicon is. Um, it's, it's kind of, and I'll explain, it's just... A dictionary of Greek words in in its original significance, yeah. but it, it more than a concordance because it actually defines the tense and so on and so forth and where it's used and how it's used. Okay. Um. If you 
cite the wrong entry, that would be lexical abuse. Yeah. If I tell you, uh, well, Josh, in John seventeen five, um, that word, that that phrase, uh, with you, para with the data there, according to Thayer, it means in the mind. You're saying it pre-existence Christ. Well, no, Thayer says in the mind. Yeah. Well, I don't know how to respond to that if I don't know what a lexicon is, if I don't know what Greek is. Yeah. But if I do know what Greek is, and I do <coughs> know how to read the basics of a lexicon, I'm going to say, well, wait a second, that's not where Thayer applied that phrase to John 17.5. That's good. In fact, Thayer doesn't give any clear example of an in-the-mind he says it could mean it, but he doesn't give it a biblical example of where it means this. Yeah. In other words, I don't know anywhere in the New Testament where para with the dative, with with the, in the dative case, followed by the dative case, means an, or has an in-the-mind reference, right? Right. Um, so the, the answer is, number one, the gospel. Never underestimate the gospel. Never, no matter how smart the guy is or how many times he's going to quote it lexicon, our reliance and power for salvation, according to Scripture, is the gospel. Yeah. Um, number two, no, you, you're not required to know languages. It's good to know, though. I mean, it's good to study up and increase your theological knowledge. Start very slowly, because you will encounter, the more you find arguments and debates on theology with non-Christian groups, you're going to find that they abuse languages. Yeah. So in that sense, and you know what? Just say, well, I'm not sure about that, but I w I'm going to find that answer. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Um, let's look at, uh, so we're going to transition a little bit here. We've talked a little bit about the emptying of Christ. We've talked about eternal sonship and eternal generation. Uh, we've talked about the Greek terms for son, the uh, huios and technon and techna. But let's look a little bit about the baptism of Jesus, because you'll see in, in Unitarian and Oneness and Trinitarian uh, groups, all, all, all three of these groups are going to see some significance to the baptism of Jesus. And uh, obviously, as Trinitarians, we're going to say this is a reference to the three persons being present all in at the baptism of Jesus. And uh, Unitarians and Oneness folks are going to take a different position on that. Um, but the question that I've got is, did his baptism have anything to do with the anointing of the man, Jesus, to begin his ministry? And how would a, um, um, a oneness or a Unitarian understand the baptism first and the anointing of Jesus second? And then we can go from uh, there. There's, no, with Unitarians and oneness, they have they've put a different spin on it because they have no objective standard of doctrine. So they all have a different view. Most, in my experience, most oneness Pentecostals to, and look, if, if you, Josh, if you didn't know anything about the Bible, you know, you were a brand new baby Christian, all you knew is Jesus was God and he died uh, for sinners and you put your trust in him and you understand at least the concept of one God yeah. in three persons. You can't communicate it, but you, you apprehend it. That's sufficient theology yeah. and you understand the direction and etc. If I show you this verse in Matthew, in, uh, Matthew 3, and we read from start to beginning of the, the context, you would never get the idea that Jesus is a ventriloquist that projects his voice. You, you wouldn't get... You, but that's the main oneness argument. Yeah. <coughs> it goes like this. I think this is postulated by Bernard. Look, here's the argument. Look, God is omnipresent. So he can be here 
in heaven, he can be in the dove, he can be in the water. Right. He's omnipresent. So those voices were all from, and here's the, the absurdity about that. Are you telling me that the that voice that was projected down from heaven was from a, and, and that person in the water and that dove all were sourced from a Unitarian, a unipersonal being that projected his voice that wanted you to think that there's distinctions of three you know, three objects. Um, so that's how they see it. God is omnipresent, so he can project his voice anywhere he wants. Same with the Mount of Duration. And same with the, the, the um, yeah, the Mount of Transfiguration, the Resurrection as well in Acts 13. There was that affirmation of sonship by the Father. So that's how a oneness person would see it, which is, I it's, it's hard to, you know, give a response to that. It, it's so absurd that that you have a unipersonal thing that's projecting his voice all over the place, and he does become a ventri divine ventriloquist. You can't just allow that text to read for itself. That's how oneness look at it. Of course, we would say, no, we look at the plain meaning. And we look at the entirety of the biblical revelation, particularly the New Testament revelation, with the distinctions from Matthew revelation, grammatical distinctions, plain distinctions of Jesus and the Father. They're distinct from each other. Jesus loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. John 10, 17. Um, modes don't love. Abstractities, they... It's they're not in the category to love. Electricity, a force, can't love. The Holy Spirit yeah. loves. The Father loves. Jesus loves. And they all interact with each other. They're, they're in a I-U relationship. So we look at the entirety of the, the New Testament text. And we're looking at Jesus and the Father. And we see that they're distinct. And John 10.30 doesn't help um, anything because it doesn't prove anything that the oneness would like. So the baptism, I think it's a great... I think uh, showing the baptism of Christ is a great um, illustration um, there, um, as with the, uh, after he sent out the, a very good one in Luke, um, as it relates, in, in Luke chapter 10, um, when he sent out the 70, or 72, whatever variant one, um, after they came back, you know, they were so happy that, you know, they said, even the demons um, rejoice. And Jesus, if I can paraphrase him, like, so what? You know, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Like, and you're telling me this? But um, Jesus said in verse 20 of Luke 10, nevertheless, rejoice that, don't rejoice that, of signs and wonders, you know, that the spirits rejoice to you, but, or they're subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't rejoice in signs and wonders, but rejoice in salvation. And then it says in verse 21, uh, through 22 in relationship to the baptism of Christ and the distinctions of Jesus and the Father. Mm -hmm. Here we have the entire Trinity involved in this prayer. Mm -hmm. It says in verse 21 that that's very, uh, at this very time he, Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now here's a place where Jesus calls the Father Lord. Whereas in Hebrews 1, the Father calls the Son Lord. Yeah. Right? Where he says, you, Father, Lord of heaven and the earth, you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, the, the things of, of um, your names being written in the book of life, and revealed them to, to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me um, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son reveals 
to uh, wills to reveal him. Are you telling me this is the same that the, the apostles would have said? Oh yeah, that's Jesus. Um, that's the same unipersonal or Unitarian God that said all this. That He rejoiced in Himself, the Holy Spirit. I praise You, who is really Me, Father, Lord of Heaven. Um, yes, Father, who is really Me, it's well pleasing in Your sight. Just doesn't make sense. It's clear distinctions here. Yeah. Same with the baptism. So I think the band shows as a, historically that's how the early church saw it as well. So we as Trinitarians are obviously drawing the distinction between three different persons being present at the baptism of Jesus. So you've got the Holy Spirit descend, descending as a dove onto Christ. You've got Jesus Christ present, and then you've got the voice of the Father coming down from heaven. Now the Unitarian or the oneness, uh, the oneness person would be able to say, well, there's different, the, the omnipresence of God, which you, you'd mentioned, but for, for, from the Trinitarian perspective, um, we would see this as modalism. Um, but the, the Unitarian would say that they're not a modalist, but they both believe the same thing. It, if, if you ask me, it seems like they both believe the same thing as it's related to uh, the unipersonality of God being one person, but showing up um, as the anointing of, uh, on, on the Lord Jesus as a man, um, but they don't recognize the divinity of Christ, um, and which is going to transition into the hypostatic union, which we'll talk about next. But, but if, if we could just take a second to talk about um, kind of this is a, a good place to talk about the modalistic perspective of God being unipersonal. God the Father is the Holy Spirit. God is spirit. So that's, that's how both the Unitarian and the Oneness would see that. And uh, they would see the 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 power um, and and the great miracles that Christ did was through the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Father, working through that man to accomplish the mission that he had. So specifically, and I'll ask it. I'll, I think I'll ask it this way: um, when we're talking about the anointing of Christ, um, some Unitarians would say, "Well, God doesn't need to anoint God. Um, God is not anointing God." God is anointing a man, and uh, if God needed to be anointed, then he wouldn't be God. So how would you kind of relate those, those uh, different perspectives there as it relates to modalism and specifically the anointing of, of Christ and yet recognizing his divine nature with his human nature? Right. Um, and the, the easy answer is simply this. We don't believe that Jesus is one nature. That radically distorts their view. That radically disturbs their view and refutes it. When they when they talk about how can God anoint God, well, that's a Muslim argument. You know, how can how can God say, um, why have you forsaken me? How can God say this? Yeah. He fathers my God. I mean, if he's God, why does he have a God? You know, so on and so forth. So, what they do, they they demonstrate their ignorance of the incarnation. In um, Psalm 22:10, a prophecy of the Messiah. Undeniably, the psalmist says, "From your womb I have been your God, or you have been my God." So he has a God, right? But yeah. it was from the womb. It was by virtue of his incarnation. Upon yeah, I have it. I just pulled it up. That's Upon you, I've asked birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Right. So what the Unitarians do with these passages, like how can God anoint God and all these things, they demonstrate their ignorance of the Incarnation. We do not believe that he was only God. That would be a, a heresy from the first century that Paul dealt with in, in, with in Colossians. 
and John, first and second John, <coughs> we believe that Jesus is the two-natured person. So in his humanity, he was the Messiah who was anointed. Not in his deity, he was co-equal with God, because he pre-existed. If he pre-existed, um, then we know his Messiahship was something that came to be. He became the Messiah. He was the promised Messiah from birth. He was the Messiah. So he also grew in wisdom and knowledge, did he not? As man, he grew yeah. in wisdom and knowledge, but never sinning. As man, he felt pain. As man, he he obeyed the law perfectly um, in the Old Testament on our behalf, in a vicarious way. He was able to be the substitution atonement, the mediator, all these things. Um, and mediator because he's God and perfect man. But they don't... Um, a lot of them don't understand the, the hypostatic union or incarnation. They don't understand that Jesus, God the Son, actually took a new nature, um, added a nature. He did not subtract, any, subtract anything in Philippians, the empty in, which I was going to mention, but rather he added a new nature. So sometimes we have to explain doctrine to them because they're so confused, and especially when they make statements like that. How can Christ be yeah. anointed if he's God? No, that's good, and I, I think that's something good to consider as well as when we're talking about um, the two natures of Christ, and uh, and you'll see Unitarians or Muslims or um, oneness folk would bring up the point that there were some things that Christ knew and and the Father that Jesus didn't know and the Father did know, and uh, things like that. Where you're saying, well, that's that's obviously going to be a difference in the two natures. Uh, but then you see other times where where Jesus is literally reading the minds of some people, so it, it's kind of it seems like sometimes you'll see the human nature um, acting in a way when the in in other places where the divine nature is acting in the in in place of the human nature. So I think that's kind of a good explanation when you're talking about adding a human nature rather than taking the divine nature um, when he became it. That when he became human, and I know that can get kind of nuanced and confusing for those who might be listening. Uh, but if you wanted to, yeah, um, Doctor Dalcor, please take a second to simplify that, because um, you know I can make it a little more complicated than it actually is. Yeah, um, simply Jesus, John one one, we we find that John presents the Word um, as in the same category as the Father. The God was the Word. It says in John one one at the last clause. John 1, 1 C, or the Word was God, so we know he was God, and he was with the Father, and he was always there from the beginning. And then in verse 14, this Word, who was God, who John personalizes through the prologue, in him was life, John the Baptist was a witness, not to the mind of God, but rather to a person. The referential identity is a person. He was life. Um, he created all things in verse 3 and 10. So in verse 14, this Word, who was distinct from the Father, who was God, became flesh. He did not subtract anything, that's not what the text says, but he actually became flesh. And in places like 1 Corinthians 2, 8, it says they crucified the Lord of glory. How do you crucify the Lord of glory? That was a divine title. Yeah. Only if he died in the flesh. Um, in John, John 1, 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 8, and I would also mention places like Romans 9, 5, which talks about he's, who came from... Uh, the fathers, according to the flesh, right? Uh, Katasarka, according to the flesh, um, <coughs> who is God overall, blessed forever. So, according to the flesh, he's God overall, blessed forever. 
And so to see all these passages that denote he's man that that was God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. He's not the Father in the flesh. No passage teaches this. He's God in the flesh, and he's the two-natured person. And also I, I want to say how important this is because um, I'll ask many times I've asked a question referring to the humanity of Christ. And I'll ask the question, does Jesus have a flesh body right now? Um, now, in yeah. oneness Pentecostalism, there's dis much disputation. Some, I believe Bernard said, the son's role had a beginning and the son will have an end. I mean, it's just mm. Jesus as the father. Some groups believe that. And I believe um, uh, the way international holds to a similar view that it's just Jesus as the Holy Spirit now. I believe that that is their view. Hmm. Either just Jesus as the Father or just Jesus as the Holy Spirit. Anyways, they all have some weird view how the Son had a beginning and he had an end, whereas someone as Pentecostals do not hold to that. Um, but dealing with with uh, the, the two natures of, of Christ and his incarnational status, he has, does he have a flesh body right now? Was That question was so important the Apostle John, that he made it a, a mark of Christian orthodoxy, yeah. mark of genuine Christianity, because he says, in John 4, and when he says, don't don't believe every spirit, but test the spirit, see, see if they're from God, then he says in verse 2, here's how we know the spirit of God, every spirit that um, that, that confesses, yeah. that acknowledge as, as factual, Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ um, is, is not from God, but uh, but is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard is coming in and now not um, and now is already in the world. Here's what's interesting. Um, now, interesting. Um, what what do you use, Josh, for your translation? Um, I use predominantly the KJV ER or the KJV. Okay, I believe they, they which is which I like, um, they add the ellipsis. Um, in other words, when it says Jesus um, Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh is from God. Whoever acknowledges this is from God. But every spirit, my translation or NASB, would say, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now the meaning here, John doesn't need to repeat it, but the meaning is that it does not confess Jesus has come in the flesh is not right. from God. Some translations actually add the ellipsis because really that's the meaning. I like it. It's not the text, but it's the meaning. Yeah. So any spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus as coming in from the flesh is not from God. Spirit of Antichrist, and it gets worse in Second John one seven because John calls these folks the Antichrist and the deceiver, right? Yeah. But here's the the point that I want to make here. The verb from, um, has come in the flesh has come and sarke. Um, Eleuthada, that, that verb translated has come. It's a perfect active participle. Perfect. Perfect tense there. Now you know that the the basic import of a perfect is a past action with continuous results. Yeah. Right? Um, and there's two there's two um, semantic categories of a um, or aspects of a perfect uh, extensive and intensive either focusing on the past or focusing on the continuous results like when Jesus says he uses the perfect it is finished well that's a perfect but you don't see any translations that I'm aware of that say it has been finished even though it could be translated but rather he's 
the the author records the perfect, and he's focusing on the present state. So I can I can proclaim the gospel to someone, and they can believe right now, and the efficacy of the cross is is will be applied to him because right now he's saved on the basis of what Christ did two thousand years ago. Okay, That's good. here it's a perfect tense. So when John says every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ who has come has come and remains that would be the import of the perfect who comes and remains in the flesh is from God every spirit that does not confess Jesus as coming and remaining in the flesh is a spirit of Antichrist or the Antichrist as he says in 2nd John so what John's saying is, if you deny that he has that he's two natures right now, if you deny that he's not incarnational now, he says you're the Christ. If you're not a Christian. You're you're the deceiver, as he says in Second John uh, one seven. So that's how important the perpetual incarnation is. That he has two natures. Paul says there's there's a time coming when God's going to judge the world by the righteousness of His Son, the Man, Jesus Christ. Right, Acts seventeen. Um, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So for Paul, it's the man, the God-man, who's mediating for us right now. So we see all these passages about him coming back in his body, about not confessing him as always incarnate is a spirit of Antichrist and and um, these these other references that show clearly Jesus Christ is a one person revealed in two natures. He's the teachers and not the two persons. Storianism. That's what Stephen Rich holds to. That's what a lot of oneness holds to. Would hold to that you have the Father and the Son in one body. Many would hold to that, and it's just yeah. crazy. And that's not biblical. So let's take a second to kind of define that because we've got a comment that came in in one of the Facebook groups. Bernie Yeeter, I might be pronouncing your last name wrong, but he says, um, it seems the primary difference to me between Unitarian oneness is Unitarians focus on the power of God in Christ where oneness says the one God is actually in Christ. How would you kind of break up the differences between uh, Unitarians and oneness folks? And um, specifically, I know that you've used this term, and I kind of like it, is um, you call them oneness Unitarians. So um, if you could just take a second and kind of differentiate the two for us. Okay. Now, the reason why we call them Unitarian, um, I also refer to Muslims as Unitarian. I also refer to Jehovah's Witnesses as Unitarian and Christadelphian because they all hold to a Unitarian concept of a God or a unipersonal concept of God. That is, that God exists as one sole person. One person. And if God is one person, he's the Father. He can't be the Son. That's their main premise. That's why they're all, like, you know, catalog all of them as Unitarian, whether it's Muslims or oneness. The difference, though, between biblical Unitarianism, and it's such, it's such an oxymoronic statement, biblical Unitarianism, because they reject virtually everything in Scripture about Christ. Um is that there, one is Pentecostalism and, un, and Biblical Unitarianism. They both will say they hold to the Scripture. They both have a concept of one person as God, who's the Father. One is believe that Jesus is the Father as God. But Jesus as the Son, 
normally denotes his humanity only, not his deity. So the difference, the main fundamental difference is, it's not their nature of God, because they both believe Jesus or God is one person, but it's how they look at Jesus. It has nothing to do with the power, because uh, one is Pentecostals always speak of the power of God. They, they always put great emphasis on the power. The difference is simply this, on Jesus. The one is Pentecostals will say, Jesus is God. A biblical Unitarian would never say Jesus is God yeah. in, in a real sense. They might say he represented God or he was God like Moses, so on and so forth. But that is would be a fundamental difference. The oneness Pentecostals have a Unitarian God that projects in three modes. Unitarians, um, the biblical Unitarians, don't have that idea that there's three modes and his name is Jesus. Oneness Pentecostals put a name on the Unitarian God. His name is Jesus. So they'll say Jesus is eternal. Yeah. Jesus is God. Um, they'll say Jesus died on the cross, because now they're talking about Jesus as the Son. When Jesus said, I am, well, he was speaking as the Father. When Jesus said, who touched me, he's speaking as the Son. You, so you, you see this confusing vacillation in right. oneness theology, whereas Unitarians, a little more simpler, they just deny everything and say only the <laughs> Okay, so now we were talking a little bit about the, uh, the hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ. And um, this is this is something that we were we were talking about in kind of the outline for what our discussion would look like today. And one of the, the question that I asked was where would you where would you go to show someone the hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ in the Bible? And and obviously you went to First um, John two and Second uh, or First John four, and then was it Second John Second uh, John two? I can't remember off. But so, is that where you would go to show somebody the two natures of Christ, or is there a particular place that you think is is better to go, um, as it's related to the two natures? Yeah, get in, get into a healthy church. No. Um, <laughs> uh, in, in terms of textual evidence, if you want to see the two natures, um, the in terms of New Testament, now there's Old Testament revelation, but the the nature Jesus did not was not incarnational. He appeared right. as the, you know, pre-incarnate appearances as the angel of the Lord and so on and so forth. But he wasn't incarnational. He, it wasn't. It was a temporary appearance of a, a physical uh, man most of the time. Whereas the New Testament, as John says, he tabernacled with us. Mm -hmm. is, is a permanent new nature from conception. He became flesh. Um, John one one with John one fourteen, of course. Yeah. And John 1.18 is fabulous, and I think we talked about this. Whether you want to take theos or, or son, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the meaning. We'll, we'll go back and talk about 1.18. Um, <coughs> Acts 20.28, 20, where it says God he purchased the church with his own blood. Uh, just be cautious when you use that, because there are some, some differences there. There's some... Um, Areas, there's some textual problems there with, with the reading. Um, but I still use it. You know, I use it, but I'm, I'll have an explanation. And some of these things aren't, you know, 100% exegetically clear. But I think 2028, 20, um, in most translations, does a good job and um, demonstrates the, the two natures of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.8, that's the one I mentioned before. Yeah. You crucify the Lord of glory. You know, look, Lord of uh, in Acts chapter seven, when Peter or when Stephen was being stoned, he, he refers to God as the God of glory, right? The God of glory. Um, Romans nine five. 
Romans 9.5. And frankly, some translations, NASB does a horrible job, I mean, to me. Um, but so, Which I don't understand why why the punctuation is different in the NSB, how they, it's just not a great, clear affirmation of the deity of the Son there. Whereas, like, uh, translation like the um, ESV, um, there's a list of translations that I have that does real justice to that, uh, to Romans 9.5. Anyways, Romans 9.5 talks about Christ according to the flesh, who is God overall. Um, I think that's a fabulous passage along with 118 because they both contain something they both contain um, not to get technical but they both contain a phrase which is a, a, a articular partici participle phrase um, who is translated who is haon in the Greek and interestingly that phrase there denotes in these kind of contexts as something timelessly existing in these contexts Timelessly existing at her own, and this can be affirmed by academic sources and or grammatical sources. Uh, so Christ, according to the flesh, who is always, always timelessly existing, God overall, blessed forever. In Acts ten thirty six, he's called Lord overall. <coughs> Here he's called God overall, but according to the flesh, God who is always God overall, blessed forever. So I think that's a fabulous verse to use in um, in showing the two natures of God. Also, the, the one I mentioned in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, and 2 John 1, uh, 7, which John gives a warning about the perpetual incarnation, uh, incarnation of Christ, and the second coming, Acts 17. By the, he's going to judge the world right. by the righteousness of the, the Son, the man Jesus Christ, and our mediator, to be a valid medi mediator, or intermediator, probably more correct, you would have to represent perfectly the groups that you're mediating from for, for whom you're mediating. He's mediating for God because he is God perfectly, and he's mediating for man because he is uh, man perfectly. So that in and of itself, by way of definition, would greatly, glaringly, I think, prove the two natures of Christ in Paul's theology. That's good. Yeah, one of the one one of the places I go. Um, to talk about the two natures is Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2. Hebrews 1 describes uh, the the divine nature of Christ being above the angels in his glory. And then Hebrews 2 talks about in his human nature how he was below the angels in, in his human nature where angels were made a little bit above, uh, above men um, as it's related to the nature. Um, but I think that that um, Romans 9 5 that example there is one of the strongest arguments that you can give to the pre-existence of Christ but also to the perpetual existence of Christ in his human uh, nature as well so obviously you've got the recognition of the incarnation there um, and that's got to be taken into consideration too but I know we're coming up on an hour and a half here um, but I'd like to take just a second um, to, to look at a, a couple of the arguments that would be some of the most popular arguments against a Trinitarian view, and then we can tie this back to the gospel um, and, and wrap it up from there. So I know that um, there's I, the late Stephen Ritchie had done a bunch of uh, different videos in, in how he believes that you had misrepresented um, uh, their particular views, um, but 
I think specifically as it's related to John 17:5 and a few other places here, but um, he's saying that you're you're misrepresenting the the words I had and saying that it cannot be translated as I shared, as uh, as he as he as you would translate it. And he says nowhere in the passage does it imply that the Son pre-existed as a God person. What would your how would you break down John 17:5? Because it seems like John 17 is such a powerful passage when we're talking about um, the eternality and the deity of Christ. How would you respond to that? Right. First, first we're, 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 it's interesting, as as many, unfortunately many charismatics, um, seems that Acts is their favorite book to misrepresent. Well, with one is Pentecostals, John 17 is some of their, one of their favorite passages. Same with Unitarians, who have a bizarre view on this one. Um, they seem to like to uh, manipulate this passage. Simply put, the the the, the term ekon, it's imperfect, right? Imperfect is a past continuous action. It means possess, possessing something, right? As uh, I think it was Vincent said, this is the glory he he always possessed. It's an imperfect tense. <coughs> um, it says, "Now, Father, uh, glorify me." It's interesting there, um, Josh, when he says, literally in the Greek. Uh, Dokason, when he says, now glorify, that, that verb yeah. there is an aorist imperative. Normally, we always the Greek words in grammar, it has the idea of um, stressing, ur- stressing urgency as a, in a commandment. Now, the only, the only reason you would, I think, one of the only reasons you would say, wait a second, can't mean that, can't mean that, because he's the son is if you reject the concept of co-equality with the person. Because here's a place where the imperative is used, uh, the, the Arius imperative is used, directed toward the Father. And the, I will say this, the word Father there, patir, is in, is in evocative case, direct address. So this is not a, a something in the mind, a plan. How does a plan address the you know, this is a vocative, uh, vocative case here. How does a plan command the Father? The plans can't command anything, right? You have the Son. He's the referential identity of John 17 praying. Now glorify me, Father, parasa alto, um, together with you. Together with you. And what do we know about in Isaiah 42 and 48? Yahweh says, I don't share my yeah. glory with anyone, right? Any other, as in 42 says, any other. Because the context there is the coming Messiah. And he says, I don't share my glory with any other. So glorify me together with yourself. Um, with the glory, hey, upon that I had, that I possess. We say share because the word in and of itself means to possess. Uh, parasa alto, together with yourself. It, syntactically, that's the meaning here. Because parasa alto... Is um, it's para with the dative that means a, a side by side, a a relationship, side by side with distinction, right? So we look at the akon there, the imperfect tense, and we look at the parasa alto with yourself. Clearly, we have a semantic of sharing here. Um, the glory that I shared with you, pratutan kasman and I, before the world was. We have two occurrences of the para with, with the dative here, parasa alto, and then parasoi. And um, 
this data, every time, it's, I think it's used in John uh, about 10 times, and every single time it's used, para with the data, it always denotes um, a distinction of something in persons. Every single time. And not one time, with one as Pentecostals, and Richie included, because he tried to use the in the mind argument, as does Perkins and all these other oneness yeah. advocates. Um, lexically, an in the mind definition is nowhere to be found. You do not find that definition in any kind of lex standard lexicon. Thayer doesn't even give a uh, a biblical example. He says it could mean that, but he he doesn't give an example. He provides no such places where para with the data means in the mind. In fact, in John 17, 17 5, he does say it means near or beside or besides uh, para to theo, dwelling with God, John 8, 38, equivalent to in heaven, John 17, 5. That was there. A.T. Robinson, this is not just an ideal pre-existence, he says, but actual conscience existence at the Father's side, para soi, with thee, which I had before the world was. And ten times it's used in John's literature, and it's always, every single time, it's a literal alongside of, in the presence of something or someone. And there's no linguistic parallel um, to what they're trying to say. Yeah. So, possess, yes, share in light of that context. Okay, so that's, I think that that's a, obviously a really good illustration to show um, how the Old Testament vision of Isaiah with Christ on the throne um, sharing glory with the Father is something that is obviously shown the equality with the Father. We saw that in Philippians 2. And we've seen it in John 17. We've seen it in John 1, Romans 9. We've seen it all over the place in the examples that you and I have talked about today. And and um, I think um, for the sake of the, the conversation today, we've, we've kind of drawn some distinctions between what a Unitarian believes in contrast to what a, a oneness person would believe as it's related to um, Christ, as it's related to the, the deity of Christ. Um, and, and, um, and, and I think we've compared those as, it, in, in a very good, I, I think in a very clear way that um, people can understand in, in how a Trinitarian would see these verses, that, that Christ, lit, he did pre-exist the incarnation, that we're drawing a distinction, that he was, he was around in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, um, and it appeared as a man in a, in a number of different ways. Um, and, and obviously you've got all the Christophanies and, and the Theophanies in the Old Testament, but um, we're, we're, we're drawing the distinction between these three persons and showing that these three persons make up the one being that we call God. Um, now, I, I think a good way to wrap up this particular podcast is um, to tie it back to the gospel. Why do we take the position, why would you take the position, why would I take the position that it's essential to, one, understand um, the Trinity when we're talking about the gospel? Like, does somebody have to know the Trinity in order to be saved? Or can somebody have a, a Unitarian or a Oneness um, perspective on Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus is my Lord, he's my Savior, I just don't believe he's God, I don't believe he's God in the flesh, can they be saved? I mean, because I've had, I've had friends, I've had family who have told me, you know what, Josh, you're being too, too hard on this stance, like they believe Jesus is their Lord, they, they're saying that he's their Savior, and you're saying they're not Christians because they don't believe he's God, like why are you taking such a hard stance on this? And, I, and for me, I'm saying this is a gospel issue, guys. Like, it's, it's a lot bigger than this. 
Um, how would you tackle this this kind of this problem? Like, why do Christians think it's not that big a deal, and why do people that we would say are not Christians um, they need to understand the Trinity, um, or at least acknowledge the deity of Christ in order to be saved? Where would you go in that side of the conversation? Well, first, you know, of course, the question would be how far off can he be and still be Christian? Can I believe that? That Jesus is Donald Duck, and I believe that there's ten Jesuses. Why not? You know, as long as I left them, right? Um, yeah. Scripture has a define, a de- makes a defining difference with that kind of those kind of assertions. Scripture is de- definitive in its theology. When Jesus said, "Unless you believe that I am, you'll perish in your sins," he wasn't kidding around. Yeah. I mean, this is a conditional statement. Unless you believe that I am, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul included the deity of Christ and the distinctions between Jesus and the Father and the idea of one God over and over and over. The Apostle John includes the perpetual incarnation. It's only a, a, by definition, an incarnation is when God becomes flesh. And he makes it a mark of being Christianity. John would disagree with that person. He said, well, can't we all just get along? And, you know, why do you have to be so harsh and all these things? We're not harsh. But we're aggressively definitive because we love the people to which we're proclaiming who Christ is. It's not any Christ saves. John, 8, uh, John when John, Jesus said that in John 8, 24, his, his followers um, clearly followed that, that teaching of Christ. That's why you have this in Paul's letters. That's why Peter emphasized that Jesus was the God and Savior in 2 Peter 1, 1. He's the Lord and Savior. Jude said in Jude 1, 4, um, he's the only master and lord they all affirm the deity humanity of christ and in first john 2 23 2 22 and 23 john says who is a liar but the one who denies that jesus is the christ this is the antichrist who denies the father and the son whoever denies the son does not have the father if you deny his deity if you deny his work says paul you don't have the father because you have a radically different different God. Unitarianisms deny the person of Christ. Oneness theology denies the nature of God. They deny Christ. No matter how you slice it, they deny the biblical Christ of, of the biblical content of which we read and which we hold to. When Jesus said, this is eternal life, they shall have knowledge of the true God. And when John says the that the Son is the only true God, he's the true God and life. Okay, these are definitive, very definitive uh, statements. It's our job as Christians, our job as Christians to um, present an accurate doctrine because it glorifies God. Along with the angels, we should worship the Son. Now, if he's not God, then we have serious problems with verses that say they worship the Son, where the angels worship the Son. The Father would disagree with the people that say you don't have to believe that he's God because he affirms his son. His son was not only God with an eternal throne, but his son was the was the Yahweh of Psalm 2, 25 through 27, the one who laid the foundation of the earth, and by his hand the, the heavens were made. This is the Father affirming his deity, him as Yahweh, and the Father commands, any commandment of the Father should be important to us, he commands all the angels to worship the Son. 
The Son was creator of all things, the unchangeable creator of all things, and he deserves the same honor, glory, and dominion as that of the Father, as John says in Revelation 5, 13, and 14, and that's why we worship him, and that is the Christ who saves, and that is the Christ who died on the cross, in which is the very basis of our gospel, in which nobody can be saved without. Yeah, and I think that's... Uh... When we're talking as Christians about confessing Jesus as Lord, I think that that term is something that has lost its meaning. I, I, I don't know that the, the majority of Christians who believe in the Trinity understand exactly what that means when we, we say, like, hey, we're using the Romans road, like, okay, Romans 10, confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and you'll be saved. Believe in your heart and confess him with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, what does that mean? Like, does that mean we're confessing Jesus that he is, he's my Lord, like I'm going to follow him now, like you're the ruler of my life. It, it, those kinds of, that kind of terminology is kind of, it seems like degraded from the, the, the actual intent of what that means. Right. To me, it's like when you confess Jesus as Lord, that's exactly what you're doing is admitting the deification, the deity of Christ, that he is God, that he is he is the Savior. He is the God-Man. Like understanding who Christ is, He is Lord, and then and then the Christ aspect of it would be the the reference to His rulership, His anointing, His rulership, His kingship. Um, but the Lord aspect is representing the deity side of Christ, and and I think that's uh, I don't believe that you can become a Christian without at least having some grasp that Jesus is God. Like He came became a man, died for you, was dead for three days, and rose again on the third day. Like, I don't know why the gospel is, that's so difficult to explain that when we're presenting yeah. the gospel. You made a very good point in Romans 9, or, Ro yeah, um, I'm sorry, Romans 10, verse 9, um, that many will confess with their mouth that Jesus has Lord. Because Paul says, if you confess and, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Well, the Mormons would agree with that, right? Mormons right. do all this. Catholics do all this. Joe witnesses have no problem. But if you look at the verses, and, and again, the antecedent to, to Jesus as Lord, right? Um, so if you confess Jesus, actually, the, the Greek, I think it's better Jesus as Lord than is Lord. As Lord, because, as I'll show you contextually, and then verse 10 says, With the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. In verse 11, for this is Paul's theme here, connected with 9. For Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Well, the him, the, what is the antecedent to him? The only the person so far, psychologically, is in verse 9, confess Jesus Christ. Now, it says that God raised him from the dead, but as we call it, the psychological, um, conjectural antecedent is Jesus in verse 9. Okay, whoever believes in him, Christ, will not be disappointed. That's the referent. And then in verse 12, there's no difference between Jew and Greek. Same Lord about, above all, right? He's the same Lord who abounding in riches for all who call on him. The only Lord that Paul has mentioned is Jesus as Lord. So he's still speaking of the same person, the same referential identity. Jesus as Lord. Yeah. And then look at verse 13. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The only Lord he's that he's referring to is in verse 9, confessing Jesus as Lord. He quotes from Joel 2.32, which says, whoever 
calls upon the name, authority, power of Yahweh mm. will save. So you have to confess Jesus as Yahweh, according to this passage, and also um, according to Philippians 2, the end of 2, when he quotes Isaiah 45, 23, every knee will bend, every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. Well, that was to Yahweh, right? That was clearly a citation yeah. from, from uh, Isaiah 45, 23. Here, whoever calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. So if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Yahweh and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, this is Paul's theology. This is the Jesus that Paul preached. He was the two-natured person who died on the cross in which we are saved through faith alone, through Christ alone. And for those of you who may um, kind of think, like, hey, obviously you're understanding our position a little more, why we think this is such a, a gospel issue. Um, you, I, I would just ask yourself, like, do you really see a distinction between the Jesus that a Mormon believes in? Do you really see a distinction between the Jesus that a Jehovah's Witness believes in? Do you see a distinction um, But in, in, in even those two groups? Like, is the Jesus of the Mormons the same Jesus as Jehovah's Witnesses? And then ask yourself, does it really matter who we believe Jesus actually is if we are still calling on him to, to save us? And, and I think the argument is being made quite clearly, like, it does matter. It does matter. It matters. It, it is absolutely a salvation issue. And if you've never considered this before, I would highly consider you, you, you think about this the next time that you present the gospel to somebody. It's not that difficult to, to present the gospel in a way that shows, like, listen, this is, this is Jesus Christ. He is God who became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. He was buried, for, and three days later he rose again. Like, I don't know how to make it any more simple than that. Like, it, working in the deity of Christ as, as understanding who he is as Lord when you're confessing, confessing Jesus as Lord and your Savior um, is essential. I don't think that, that Jesus is going to save you if you just believe he's your friend. I don't think that Jesus is going to save you if you you just ask him into your heart. Like I don't see those things in scripture. I don't I see that Jesus is in our heart, but that's after you're saved. I don't think that just asking Jesus to come into your heart is going to save you. I think recognizing who Jesus is and what he's done for you personally, that that's that's the faith that we're trust that's what our tr our faith is. That's the trusting in who Jesus is and the work that he's done. Um, but I'll give you the last word, and then if you wanted to, if you have time, we could turn it over to questions from the audience. I, I know we've had some side chats going in, um, and I'm not sure what all we could work in here, but um, I'd like to give you the last word on this as it's related uh, to the gospel, if you had anything else that you wanted to say here. Yeah, it, again, it, it does matter. We're, we Constantly, we pray for people who are... Um, we pray that God would deliver people from the darkness of Unitarianism and and the darkness of modalism and the darkness of all, which I call atheistic religious groups. Uh, Paul had no problem using the term atheist for the, the Ephesians before they were uh, before they were saved, of course, in Ephesians 2.12. He said they're without hope, um, without God, right? Without hope, without God, and the term is atheoid. Uh, we pray that God will deliver these people um, out of monarchianism or modalism or Unitarianism and come to the, the light of Christ. We pray that God will bring them to the light of Christ and they will be exposed and embrace the triune God as um, communicated by the Old Testament prophets. Um, all over the place you have Old Testament references of 
a multi-personal God, not a Unitarian one. And this was the doctrine of the apostles. One is Pentecostals talk about, you know, we, we hold to the apostolic doctrine. Well, no, you don't. You reject the apostolic doctrine because Paul differentiated the three persons over and over and over. And although oneness advocates claim uh, devotion to Jesus Christ as their God and Savior, they embrace clearly another Jesus, a, a different spirit, a different gospel. And as you pointed out, Josh, eternal life is having knowledge in the true God and Jesus Christ. And the true God in, in a biblical light is, is triune. I like what Jonathan Edwards said. Um, he rightly stated, the whole divine essence does truly and distinctly subsist in both the divine idea, divine love, and that each of them are properly distinct persons. There's only one biblical revelation of God, and that's a triune God. And um, if you're in oneness, if anyone's watching this or listening to it, and they're they're in a oneness group or they're Unitarian, we would just pray that um, through the Holy Scripture, you will um, that God would reveal Himself to you, and that the only true God that you would find would. Uh, through the grace and sovereignty of God, is um, a triune God, because that's the only Jesus that saves. There is no other Christ that saves, but a, a second person of the Trinity, a two-natured person. Yes, we believe in three distinct persons sharing the nature of the one God as Scripture presents. So that, that's our view. That's, that's my view. And I, I would pray that God would deliver you from the darkness if you're in it. And Christians, learn how to communicate the Trinity in a, in a clear fashion. You don't have to get extraordinarily philosophical. There's no need. Just use the biblical evidence. There's one God, there's three persons, and these three persons who share the nature of the one God are presented as as distinct. There's many passages that, that show the distinction between three persons. From Matthew 20, 19, um, Paul's great benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, clearly, grammatically differentiating these three persons. This is biblical doctrine. This is the God who saves. This is God how choosing to reveal himself through the pages of Scripture. That's good. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Do you want to take a second to answer any questions that are coming in, or how are we doing on time? That's fine. I have a few minutes to answer questions. Okay. Uh, if anybody would like to call in with your questions, you can do that. I know we've had a number of people who have dropped off on the live stream, and that's totally fine. But if you're still viewing and would like to call in with a question, I know we've got some questions uh, in the live chat from um, a couple different Unitarians and Trinitarians as well. But the number is 816-866-0025, and uh, you can reach us and talk to Dr. Um, Dalcor. But I've got one question that had come in um, online, and I won't use your name. I don't know if you want me to use your name, but you're, um, I won't use your last name. Brendan says, um, in reference to Jesus being the image of God and at the right hand of God, um, seated at the right hand of God, um, I had made a reference that Jesus is called the hand of Jehovah, and he, he's called the right arm of Jehovah. He's called the arm of Jehovah specifically. And his response is, we are all made in the image of God, that we are all at the right hand of God, which is a position of power. Um, and he goes on, he says, he says, um, 
Um, Kenneth Kenneth Joel um, chimed in and said says well Jesus was given the authority he was given the position of power uh, in Matthew twenty eight eighteen um, and he goes on to say well Jesus was exalted to God's right hand that wasn't the case before Jesus existed how would you respond to that well I would ask the question was Jesus exalted as man or as God as man in this in this particular case he'd be exalted as man. Yeah, that, that, actually, that's that's the answer. Um, the Trinity doesn't teach that God was exalted because God cannot be exalted higher than what He is. He's the ultimate authority of all things. But the Scripture teaches that God, again, God became man, and by virtue of His humanity, He grew in wisdom and knowledge. He can be exalted. He, as we read in Philippians, keep in mind the same verse that says He exalted to the highest name. The same exact set of passages say in verse six, He always was in the nature of God. So we can't, you know, sacrifice a passage for the expense of another passage. We can't put pastors against each other. The doc, that's consistent with the Trinity, that Jesus as man was exalted. He called his father God. Um, he, submitted to, uh, he submitted to the Father, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and I would, I would submit based on John um, 6, 38, in his preexistence, he obeyed the Father's will. But obedience is irrelevant to ontology because he obeyed does not mean he's less than if the wife obeys the husband right it doesn't mean she's less human than the husband these are functional aspects and this is consistent with the uh, doctrine of the Trinity so there's no problem there because that's what we find all over the place Jesus's independent living as a as God man as man um, on earth being uh, submissive to the Father and as I said before there's verses where he was submissive to the Father, uh, pre-incarnate. We see that also with, with the angel of the Lord. But to say that erases the other passages that teach he was fully God um, would be inc an incorrect way of looking at the scripture. Um, okay, that's good. I think we've had a lot of other side chat going on that I, is is kind of related um, to the topic, but I don't think it's exactly related. So... Um, I think this would be a good place to wrap up, and I would just say thank you again for coming on, Dr. Dacor. It's been, it's been really good. I, we didn't even get to John chapter 1. We, I, there's so many different places we didn't get to, and obviously this, this topic is just so vast and robust that the conversation could go on and on and on, and it does for a good reason. That's why we still have debates about it. That's why we still have uh, people talking about this and contending for the faith, in my opinion, I think it's I think it's important. So thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it, and you're welcome back anytime. So, Josh, good being here. All right. Well, I'm going to cut over to our closing scene and give you guys a couple updates on what to expect as we um, move into the upcoming weeks, and then go from there. So thanks again, and I'll catch up with you um, hopefully soon, and and go from there. So. Okay. Good all right, guys. Um, so let's uh, let me let me give you just a real brief update. So I was talking to Keith Piper in Australia, who's written extensively on this subject on the Trinity. Uh, some of the material that I used in my debate with Kenneth Joel came from him. Some of the material that I used uh, for the debate with Kenneth Joel as well came from Dr. Dalcor in his book 
on uh, oneness theology. So go check that out if you haven't. And check out his website, christiandefense.org. There's so much good information on there. Um, and obviously we believe the Trinity is essential to understanding um, who God is, who Jesus is, and it's a, it's a gospel issue. So if you've never considered that, let me know. You can reach out to me at talkingchristianityapologetics at gmail.com, or you can call this number anytime and leave a message, 816-866-0025. Uh, but call, uh, leave, leave a, a review as well on iTunes, um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, all the different um, podcasting platforms as well. So you can subscribe on uh, YouTube as well and hit the notification button to get to get notifications next time we go live. Um, but I've been talking to Dale Tuggy. I'm working on uh, getting a debate structured with him for him and another guy um, to debate. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. It might end up being me and Dale. I don't know. Uh, we'll see what happens there. But that, that debate might happen. Um, and we've got some other stuff in the works as well. So just stay tuned. And I'll catch up with you guys soon. So hopefully that's been a blessing to you, talking about the Trinity and some of the differences between Unitarian and Oneness beliefs as it's related to Jesus. Um, anyways, that's all I got today. God bless, guys, and we'll catch up with you soon.